right, well, thank you for joining us for another gathering of God's people. And as we are gathered, we know that he's in the midst of us. Last week, uh, when we were together, we considered Numbers chapters 1 and 2, and we saw then that God requires his people to order every aspect of their lives around him. I wish we had more time to spend talking about that, but we need to press on. And today, as we look at chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see that uh, that same idea uh, both naturally and necessarily extends to our worship and service to God as we see that those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. Now, before we begin with Numbers, let's turn together uh, back to the book of Hebrews so that we can sort of prime the pump here and gain a bit of perspective on what we're studying today. Rather than Hebrews chapter 10, let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll, I know it says the first 11 verses in your program. That's my fault. It's... Uh, the first 10 verses. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. <clears throat> and he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now with that lingering in our minds, let's turn back to Numbers chapter 3. And while we want to see the, the whole text here, I want to encourage you, uh, as I have been, to be reading the book of Numbers. Whatever else you're doing with your uh, private time with God, make sure that, that you're including reading the book of Numbers in it. And uh, you can pick up all of this text for yourself, your sensible people. We're going to be reading uh, some selections here. I'll jump around a little bit um, just so that we can get the gist of everything uh, without getting lost in the details. So Numbers chapter 3, we'll read the first 13 verses. I'll drop things on the floor. I'll pick them up and continue. This is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab the firstborn and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests, who were ordained to serve as priests. Nadab and Abihu, however, fell dead before the Lord when they made an offering with unauthorized fire before him in the desert of Sinai. They had no sons, so only Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests during the lifetime of their father Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. 
The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. Jump down to verse 38. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle toward the sunrise in front of the tent of meeting. They were responsible for the care of the sanctuary on behalf of the Israelites. Anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. Chapter 4, the first four verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a census of the Kohathite branch of the Levites by their clans and, and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work of the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. Jump ahead to verses 20 to 26. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. The Lord said to Moses, Take a census also of the Gershonites by their families and clans. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work at the tent of meeting. This is the service of the Gershonite clans as they work and carry burdens. They are to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, <clears throat> its covering, and the outer, outer coverings Excuse me, and the outer covering of hides of sea cows, your translation may say of durable leathers. The curtains of, for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, the curtain for the entrance, the ropes and all the equipment used in its service. The Gershonites are to do all that needs to be done with these things. Jump down to verse 29. Count the Merorites by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work at the tent of meeting. This is their duty as they perform service at the tent of meeting, to carry the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, and bases, as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, ropes, all their equipment, and everything related to their use. Assign to each man the specific things he is to carry. This is the service of the Merorite clans as they work at the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Jump to verse 49. At the Lord's command through Moses, each was assigned his work and told what to carry. Thus they were counted as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we encounter your word today, overcome all obstacles in us, obstacles of distraction, of deception, of discouragement, the voices of the world, the voice of the enemy. Lord, we want to hear only your voice. Protect us from any human opinion. Speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue that no one here might be focused on the messenger, but only on the message. Father, guide us. Change us. Remake us into people who look like Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. Wouldn't you know it, just as you're getting ready to preach, you get a tickle in your nose that won't go away. All right. So our core reality for today as we're looking at this is that those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. As we're working through the book of Numbers, remember that it's part of a five-volume series, if you will, that's really one story. We call the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch or the Torah, Pentateuch meaning the five books. And the nature of the Pentateuch is that this whole narrative grows out of everything that has come before it. 
So it's not just that this is picking up from verses from chapters 1 and 2. We're actually picking up from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and we'll continue on into Deuteronomy, which then bleeds over into Joshua as we see the history of Israel unfold. Genesis is the foundation of everything. Now in our day there seems to be a lot of debate over the nature of Genesis and whether it's important even to the point where everything that we're looking at here has been unhitched by some famous folks. That is an unfortunate and heretical thing. Genesis is the foundation of everything. Our entire faith rests on the reality that God created everything perfectly for His glory. Sin brought condemnation to humanity and a curse to all of creation. But God intended from the beginning to redeem mankind and chose for Himself a man, Abraham, through whom He would build a nation through which He would bless and redeem all nations. And it is through that nation, through Abraham and his offspring, the seed of the promise, that the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3 would come, the one to whom we all look, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Exodus shows God revealing Himself personally and intimately to His chosen people. This is where He first gives His personal name of Yahweh, I Am. He reveals Himself to Moses. Interestingly, Moses wasn't seeking Him. But God chose Moses, and He showed Himself to Moses. And He opened Moses' eyes and heart to be able to receive by faith what Moses was naturally resistant to. This is where God not only reveals Himself personally and intimately to His chosen people, but He delivers them out of the bondage of slavery to bring them to a glorious land of promise. Leviticus picks up at the end of Genesis. They, they get out of Egypt, and you know it takes them a little bit of time. They get to the foot of Mount Sinai, and in Leviticus, they're receiving the law. Leviticus emphasizes the holiness of God and the requirement that His people be holy, set apart for Him, set apart from the world and its ways. Some key verses in Leviticus bring that point out. You must be holy, for I am holy. I have set you apart from the nations that you should be mine. Now, here in Numbers, we see the Lord preparing them to receive all that He has promised them, though they will grumble and sin and therefore suffer in the wilderness before God brings them into the promised land. In the meantime, God organizes and instructs them. Last time we saw God organize the tribes around the tabernacle as He ordered them for war. We saw the census, and the counting was of those who were 20 years old and could and, and, and older and could serve in the military. He was preparing them and he was organizing them. And at the focus of all of it, in their daily living, in their camping, in their marching, the tabernacle, representing the presence of God in their midst, was literally in their midst. God had them camp around it with all the tribes facing in to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting, that they would be focused on God and organized around Him. Now He organizes the Levites to do the work required to lead the people in worship. Previously, He was ordering them for war. Now He is ordering them for worship. They were not included in the census of those who could serve the Lord in the military because their role is to serve the Lord in sacred worship. While the others must guard the nation against enemies, the Levites must guard against corruption of the holy things and protect the people from incurring God's wrath by presumptuous and sinful attitudes toward God. Now as we're working through this, there are three main things that we see clearly revealed in today's passage. Maybe you haven't thought of these before, and if you have, then uh, I am hopeful that this will reinforce in you the truths of Scripture. But for most of us, Unfortunately, our backgrounds tend to avoid the Old Testament in general, unless we're looking at some pretty cool stories about David and Goliath. 
We always like those. But we don't tend to gravitate toward you know, things like censuses and law, and, uh, what we would consider boring. Three things that we want to see. Let me give you the three, the, the three categories we're going to look at, and then we'll get into the, what they each are. First, we observe God's sovereign election. Next, we see God's unapproachable holiness. Then we see God's righteous requirements. Let's talk about God's sovereign election. Notice as we are working through this that God chooses who will belong to Him. God chooses who will belong to Him. As we see uh, in chapter 3, this is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talks with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, understand this transition, right? God is speaking from the mountain, separated from the people, and He's transitioning now to being in their midst in the, in the tabernacle in the tent of meeting. My apologies. <clears throat> now he, he lists the names of Aaron's sons and he moves into this idea of the Levites. Uh, picking up on verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. They're to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting. By doing the work of the tabernacle, they are, to, they are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the, of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. They're given to Aaron. They are assigned to Aaron. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. Now this is an important point for us to recognize. Pardon me just one moment. Well, that's just horrible. <clears throat> it's important for us to recognize that anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. God says these people are to do this work. God chooses. You don't get to just come to God because you feel like it. You don't get to come to God in the manner in which you desire. We'll get to that a little later on. But notice what he says about the Levites. In verse 11 and 12, the Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, you'll remember that as the tenth plague, the, the most horrible plague, as God brings His judgment on Egypt and He breaks Pharaoh's hard heart, at least for a moment. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. This is the Lord choosing those who will belong to Him. As God redeemed the people and He slew the firstborn in Egypt, He delivered the firstborn of Israel, but He consecrated them to Himself. He said, the firstborn belongs to Me. So every firstborn, male specifically, when this happens, they belong to to the Lord. They're to be given to God. They don't get to live the way they want to live. They don't get to pursue the career mom and dad want. They are to be given to the Lord. Along with every animal, every firstborn animal is to be given to the Lord. And God here says something else. Because He is sovereign, He gets to choose who will belong to Him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, lost my spot here. Verse, um, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, count the Levites by their families and clans, count every male a month old or more. So Moses counted them as was commanded by the word of the Lord. And he goes on through each of these and he says the Levites here are going to take the place of these uh, of the first male offspring in every from every Israelite woman. Verse 12. I have set apart the firstborn for myself. 
and I'm going to tell you I'm going to make a trade because I'm God. In place of the firstborn, I'm going to redeem those firstborn by taking the Levites instead. God chooses who will belong to Him. He elected to take the Levites in the place of the firstborn as well as electing them for this job. Notice second, God chooses who will serve Him and how. God chooses who will serve Him and how. The Levites did not earn their positions. They didn't uh, you know, have this, this whole uh, zip recruiter thing. They turn in a resume and see who's going to be best for this job. They didn't earn it by being holier than somebody else. And Aaron and his sons didn't earn their priesthood by being better than somebody else. But God said, Aaron and Aaron's descendants are set aside to be my priests. The Levites, from which Aaron came, all of the Levites belong to me, and they will do the work associated with the priesthood. They won't be priests. They can't do the things that the priests are called to do, but they will serve by doing the the support work, if you will. Not only that, but he designated specifically within there the different jobs. So the Kohathites, they're dealing with the most holy things. The ark, and, and he gives the details in there of how exactly it's to be done. And you can see that played out in, in the end of uh, the book of Exodus as all of the details are given to how to make the tabernacle, the curtains, the specific things. There's a weird uh, uh, translation issue trying to figure out what this uh, sea cow skin is some some translations the newer niv calls it durable leather uh the message i think calls it dolphin skin there's a every translation i found was a different uh, different take on it but in essence there is a special covering with another special covering and another special covering and all of these things are to be done just so and the kohathites they get that job because they're better than the others? No. But God has chosen them to do His work His way. They're not better than the Merorites or the Gershonites. And the, the, the Aaronites, if you will, Aaron's descendants, are not better than anybody else. But they've been chosen. And they've been assigned a job. And therefore, God authorizes them to do what no one else is authorized to do. Because God, <clears throat> excuse me, God is holy. That brings us to our second main theme that we see here. We, we've seen God's sovereign election. This has been a, a major focus. We're going to continue to see this major focus of God's sovereign election that God appoints. He puts them in place. And He has expectations and demands. And they don't get to turn it down. They don't get to say, well, you know, Lord... I, I think I'd really rather be a sports broadcaster. You know, I was thinking about becoming a computer programmer. Nope, this is your job. It's not a vocation like we might think of priests today. If you're in a church that, that has that position, it's something that you aspire to. You get an education and you, uh, you, know, you get accepted and ordained. But here the education is the upbringing that you received and the instruction of God's Word. And the ordination comes from God saying, you are mine, you do my thing my way. Second, we see God's unapproachable holiness. God's holiness cannot abide sinfulness. This is a pretty important thing for us to grasp. We see it right out of the gate. In the first, uh, first what was it, 13 verses that we saw in chapter 3, we really see kind of an, uh, an encapsulation of everything else principally that, that we'll be seeing throughout. God's holiness cannot abide sinfulness. As we consider God's unapproachable holiness, notice what happens here right out of the gate uh, in verses 2 and 3 and 4. The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab the firstborn. That's a pretty prominent position as the son of Aaron. 
Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests, chosen by God. They didn't, they didn't aspire to it. They were chosen and given that, set apart to that task. The anointed priests who were ordained to serve as priests. But notice verse 4, Nadab and Abihu, however, fell dead before the Lord when they made an offering with unauthorized fire before Him in the desert of Sinai. Now you can see that in Leviticus 10. In fact, let's just turn back there real quick. It's a rather short passage, but the way the author of Leviticus, being Moses, words it, I think hits better than I could possibly tell you. We've just gone through this whole uh, ordination, and in chapter 9, uh, having ordained the priests, um, now they're beginning to, to minister before the Lord. And at the end of chapter 9, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Back when we were working through Leviticus, spent quite a bit of time looking at this idea that Moses and Aaron didn't like the fire. God did. This was a holy supernatural fire that lit the fire at the altar that they would continue to burn but notice what happens at the beginning of chapter 10 understand the the ironic priesthood has just begun right they just got out of uh, egypt they just got all the instruction they put all this stuff together and god has just set them apart and ordained them consecrated them to himself to himself and now immediately 10.1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. It's very important that when God says something, we pay attention to it. Amen? When God says do it, we do it. Not the way we want, the way God says. Verse 2, so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That before the Lord is an important uh, phrase. It's not just that they died, but they died before the face of God. Because of God's holiness, they could not live. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. That's a hard place to be if you're Aaron, but understand that God's holiness is bigger and greater. It is weightier and more important than anything else in this world. We must recognize that God dwells, as the hymn says, in inapproachable light. In light inescapable, hid from our eyes. That light represents His glory. The picture of God's purity and holiness is in stark contrast to all that is unclean, impure, imperfect, and sinful. Anything that falls short of the mark is destroyed by the presence of God's holiness. When Nadab and Abihu came in Leviticus 10 and they offered this sacrifice, they came to God, I'm sure, zealously wanting to come and do this thing. Now maybe they had good intentions. We're not really told much about what's going on in their inner, inner selves. But they presumed to be able to offer this, what the King James called strange fire, they presume to be able to come and worship whenever they want, however they want. Boy, we're guilty of that today, aren't we? Sunday morning is a beautiful time. It's the time appointed for Christians to gather. It's not that we don't gather at other times, but this is the time that since the resurrection of Christ has been set apart for Christians on this Lord's Day morning. It doesn't make you not a Christian if you don't gather on Sunday morning. But it does mean that you're not doing what we've been called to do. 
Very often on this Sunday morning, what we do is we come and we want it to be on our terms. So we have churches that are come as you are and we dress in jeans and, and things like that because we want to. Well, you can say, well, God doesn't say we need to dress up. He doesn't. That's not the point. The point is you're not dressing the way you're dressing because you're thinking of God. You're thinking of, it's how I want to dress. It's my comfort, and it doesn't matter how I approach God. We're not going to start requiring dresses and ties at church. But God does require a heart that is surrendered and humbled and not presumptuous. When we come to Him, we need to grasp the gravity of what it means to be in a holy place. This building isn't holy because it has some magical powers. It's holy. It's set apart because in this moment, when we are gathered as the people of God, at this appointed time, it has been set apart to God. And if we're coming here to encounter the living God personally, gathered with the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ, there is a weight to that. And I confess that I have far too often taken it too lightly. We have a coffee station out in the lobby so that you can have your coffee as you come in. Now, if I were truly convicted about that being a bad thing, we wouldn't have it. All I'm saying is that when we make these choices, we are working really hard to make all of this, the worship of God, conform to our comforts. Don't raise your hand for this, but how many of us would come and gather if we didn't have air conditioning? If we didn't have heat in the wintertime. If the power were out and we didn't get to have all the technology that we use. How many of us would come if the music didn't really sit right with us? It wasn't the quality we were looking for. Or the preacher isn't dynamic enough. Every time we are coming based on our preferences... We're basically worshiping God on our terms instead of His. Now we are not bound by the law because the law was fulfilled in Christ. We're not bringing animal sacrifices. Let's not be confused. But the heart that we are called to bring is a heart that is humble and submissive and grateful and recognizes that we in ourselves have no right to look upon God at all. No right to stand before Him. And when we recognize His grace and the glory of who He is hits us and it lands on us heavy, then we can't come to church and just take it for granted. And we can't blow it off. We can't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, as we read earlier in, in Hebrews. Because it's too important. The weight of meeting God in the midst of His people becomes the thing around which we arrange our lives. We order every aspect of our lives with God at the center, living for Jesus Christ. And when I change that around, and I order my schedule according to all of my other priorities, and I give God whatever I can fit into my schedule, that tells me a lot about where my heart is. If I'm stepping on your toes right now, that's because you're paying attention. If I'm not stepping on your toes right now, you might be a little too full of yourself and thinking that you're not messing up here. Because I'm dancing all over my toes, for sure. We dare not approach God on our terms. God's holiness is cannot abide sinfulness 
Human sinfulness cannot survive God's holiness. There's a necessary separation between the sacred and the common. We see that even in the way God arranged the tribes, right? So they're, they're gathered on all four sides of the tabernacle, everybody facing in, but they're gathered at a distance from the tabernacle, and the Levites are encamped between the people and the tabernacle. There's a buffer zone. The Levites provide protection from the sin of presumption so that they don't just decide I'm going to go to God whenever I want to rather than how he's prescribed it. I'm going to bring whatever sacrifice I feel like whenever I feel like the way I want to do it. That's the sin of presumption. It's not an accident that God uses Nadab and Abihu as an example immediately after installing the priesthood. It's not an accident. It's our tendency, it's our natural bent to do it our way instead of God's way. It's the same thing that happened in Genesis 3. We decided we'd rather listen to somebody else. They got a good plan. I think that makes sense. God said, no, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to do my thing. Nadab and Abihu, I know God said to do this, but I'm sure, you know, he'll, he'll be good. He knows I'm doing my best. How often have we given no consideration to how we approach God? God's unapproachable holiness cannot abide sinfulness. Notice, secondly, God may only be approached on His terms. I've gotten ahead of myself a few times here, so we've discussed a chunk of this, and I'm going to try to skip over some of it so we can uh, speed things along. God may only be approached on His terms. To whom God chooses... He delegates the authority to approach the holy things, but only within His authorized limits. Notice, even the Levites could not go beyond the commands of the Lord. The Gershonites and the Merorites could not do the job of the Kohathites. It had to be a Kohathite that was dealing with the most holy things from the Holy of Holies. But they couldn't go in and just grab the stuff and move out Aaron and the priests had to handle all of those things. They had to prepare it. They had to cover it. So that only the Kohathites, only the way God prescribes, were able to carry the things to go forward. But notice that even the Kohathites, as they're, uh, as they're doing their job, they've been assigned the work of the most holy things. But chapter 4, verse 20 the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment or they will die. But wait a minute, that's not fair. Let me just tell you, hell is populated with folks who said that's not fair. Some of the worst things in approaching God begin with the idea of that's not fair. Some of the biggest false doctrines and heresies that have stolen our hearts away from God start with that's not fair. That's not fair means I'm judging God. I get to judge God's word, but the reality is God's word judges me. I don't get to do it my way. I come to God on his terms. I don't like it. Tough. This is not the approach we hear very often today. But if we don't, you know, if we don't make it a little bit softer, then people are going to turn away. They won't be attracted to God. Tough. I'm sorry, folks. If, if the things of God, according to God's prescription, are not for you and you turn away, that is not my responsibility. It wasn't the responsibility of Aaron or Moses. Our responsibility is to do what God says, period. That is the responsibility of every single believer in Jesus Christ. You have chosen Him as Lord. More specifically, He has chosen you to open your eyes so that you would choose Him as Lord. And now, with Him as your Lord, that means nobody else can be your Lord, including you. We approach God on His terms. As He assigns to the Levites the work, He gives them very clear and specific restrictions. 
And he gives them the grace, not only of allowing them to participate in worship in a way that the rest of the tribes are not allowed to participate. Did you ever think about that? God is saying, the rest of you don't get to participate in the worship the way these people can. You will still worship, but you'll worship using their work. Because your submission to what I'm telling you is worship. But as he gives them these restrictions, as he gives them their very specific instructions, he also gives them the grace to allow them to do the job with his delegated authority and not be destroyed. When they presume to do the job that was not assigned to them, we read it a couple of times, they must be put to death. If you're not a Levi and you're a Levite and you're trying to do the job of those from the tribe of Levi, you must be put to death. You try to approach the tent of meeting without that authorization from God, you must be put to death. It's kind of a theme. If you're a Levite and you try to do somebody else's job because, you know, that's a cooler job than mine. Man, the Kohathites, they get to handle all the most holy things. All I do is carry the tent poles. I, I don't feel like that's as good a job. I'm just as good as they are. I want to do their job. And they must die. That sounds so harsh. Yeah, it is. That's the reality of a holy God in an unholy, sinful world. All that is imperfect is destroyed by God's unapproachable holiness. But in His grace, He gives them a delegation of His own authority to do certain things. As we read in Hebrews, and we won't go back to Leviticus to look at the details of it, the priests, Aaron's line, were able to go into the holy place to do their things, but, but only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and he could only go in once a year, and he had to bring in an offering to atone for his sin before he could bring an offering to atone for the people's sin. And God allows him to go in without dying by his delegated authority. But when he presumes to do it on his own, under his own authority, as if he has a right to anything, he is to die. Even the Levites couldn't go beyond the commands of the Lord because God may only be approached on His terms. Let me just challenge you today. As you're working through this, you know this isn't really about Levites. It is. I mean, the text is very clear. That's what it's about. This is a picture of what's going on. And Moses is writing it for the people of Israel. Yes, for the Levites, but he's writing it for the common people to know how God works. In that same way, God is giving us His Word. He's revealing Himself to us through this so that you and I can understand that God chooses who will belong to Him. He chooses who will serve Him and how. His holiness can't abide sinfulness. And we don't get to approach Him on our terms. He can only be approached on His. It is God's grace that we have these terrifying stories so that we can understand what it means to truly fear God before His holiness consumes us. And it's only in fearing God that we can understand how to love God. Remember, that's the, the, the big command, right? That's what Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. What's the greatest command? All of the commands come together in this head. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. God, number one. Nothing else even makes the list. When we get that, we get it because we have understood the fear of God. We don't get it otherwise. We can't understand God's grace until we understand the price that we owe because we are unholy. 
because we are sinful. God, in His holiness, cannot have a relationship with us as we are. God does not save you because He looks on you and says, Man, she's really got it together. You know, He's, he's really leading His family well and... and you know, I would be so proud to have them as my children. That's not how this works. When he looks at us, he sees one of two things. Either the indelible stain of sin that clouds everything, which is a reproach to God. And in the darkness of our sin, his light destroys everything. Or he sees the blood of Christ. That covers all our sin. That takes it all away because He took it. He didn't have His sin. He took our sin and became sin for us on that cross. So that we could become God's righteousness. And when God looks on us. This is Ephesians 1, which we'll read in a few minutes. When God looks on us, He sees the blood of Christ. And we have authorization by the blood of Christ to go beyond the curtain into the most holy place, the holy of holies. Beyond where we would ordinarily be allowed. Just as light dissipates darkness just by its mere presence, it doesn't have to do anything, it casts it out by being. God does the same with sin. His holiness destroys all that is imperfect. But Christ gives us, credits to us through faith, His perfection. And gives us the right to become children of God. Last thing we need to see from this section is God's righteous requirements. God's righteous requirements. God chooses, yes He does, He chooses Israel out of all the nations of the world. This, this is His chosen people. Within Israel, He chooses the Levites to do the work in the tabernacle. And within the Levites, He chooses Aaron's family to be His priests. Because He must show Himself holy for our goodness and His glory. For our good, not our goodness. We don't have any goodness on our own. God gives His servants meaningful responsibility. God gives His servants meaningful responsibility. Notice He has specific roles for each division here. He doesn't just throw them in a pot and say, oh, go do the work. He gives specific instructions, makes specific provisions, delegates specific authorities because he has roles for those he chooses. If they don't choose the roles, he does. God requires his servants to guard the holy things entrusted to them. Each of these divisions within the Levites takes responsibility for the things of God that have been entrusted to them. I'm reminded of Paul's charge to Timothy to guard the faith. Guard what has been entrusted to you. You and I are entrusted with the holy things of God in Christ. It is crucial that we, we take seriously our charge, particularly those who are in leadership. As a pastor, it's my job to make sure that I do everything I can to guard the holy things, to make sure to the extent that I am able, that we are learning, building our house on sound doctrine, the solid foundation of Christ, not human opinion. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I want. My job is to make sure that all of us together are protected from the sin of presumption. From the sin of thinking we can do whatever we want and it's cool. 
all of us as Christ followers, owe it to God. We owe it to those around us to protect them from God's wrath. People all around us, even inevitably those who are hearing this sermon today, are living and dying apart from Christ, by nature objects of wrath, just as we were. It's our nature. Already condemned, how do we save them? How do we protect them from dying? By teaching and living the good news that even though our sin separates us from God, Jesus Christ has paid the price for us so that we can be made right with God by faith. Not by any holiness of our own, but by the righteousness that is credited to our account from Christ. This is how we have a relationship with Him. And this is how we guard the holy things for others. God gives His servants meaningful responsibility. Notice also, God's servants are accountable for their work. God's servants are accountable for their work. Jesus told several parables to remind us of this. That the Master will expect that we will do what we've been assigned Notice here in Numbers 4 that God's work must be done God's way. God's work must be done God's way. We don't get to do it however we want. Just like with Aaron's first two sons, you don't get to come and think you're calling the shots. In the same way, we today must do what God requires the way God requires it. Also notice that in these divisions... And we'll see this, this will come up again a little later on in another story about a, one of the Kohathite families that figures they ought to have a different role. They think they're just as good as Aaron, so why not? Why can't we be priests? We're tired of this stuff. But the servant must embrace the mission and role that God assigns. The servant must embrace the mission and role. But I don't really like the lot that I've gotten in this life. I, I don't really like the situation that I'm in. I don't, I don't really like the marriage I'm in. I don't like being single. I don't like being uh, sick. I don't like being poor. I don't like living here. I don't like... Who cares? Now, if you're in that situation right now where you're feeling uh, this struggle of life and the weight coming down on you and the difficulty of all of this, I don't want to sound discompassionate because my heart breaks for you. It does. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, all of the suffering we go through in this life isn't worth comparing to the glory that He has in store for us. And if it requires the suffering for us to see Him clearly, so that though we might die in this body, we live eternally in the presence of God, then how could it possibly not be worth it? I don't want to suffer any more than anybody else. But if that's what it takes for me to know Him rightly, then Lord, bring it on. I don't want it. I hate suffering. I'm a man. I don't even like having a cold. Right? I'm not as tough as my wife. But I want to know God more than I want to be comfortable. I want to know God more than I want to be healthy. I want to know God more than anything else. God's servants must embrace the role and the mission that He's given us. Whatever your lot in life, your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You've been given a mission to make disciples. 
whatever you're doing, to show people Christ, to lead them to Him and to help them grow in Him, which requires doing that very same thing yourself. When I'm focused on how miserable my lot is or how much better somebody else has it or that's not fair, I'm not focused on joyfully doing my mission and living out my purpose. For the sake of time, I'm going to jump right to Ephesians 1. There's so much more to say, but again, you're, you're smart folks. You can put this to work in your own lives. If you would join me at Ephesians 1, read the first 14 verses. Paul is writing this, and I'm going to include his greeting because his greeting is important to his perspective here. He recognizes that he himself did not choose to be an apostle, but was chosen by God. He writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints at Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through the blood for the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to, <clears throat> excuse me, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, speaking of the apostles there, might be for the praise of His glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. I'm going to close with our memory verse for today, but I just briefly want to point out that this entire section I just read and everything that we see about God's sovereign choice of the Levites, of the Israelites, of the disciples of Christ is given to give us a confidence that when God says we are His, nothing can take us out of His hand, not even us. Lord knows I'm my biggest enemy. And in the words of Andy Minio, even I can't stop me. The reality of it is that Jesus Christ has secured salvation for all who will believe. Not all who are perfect, because that ain't going to happen but He has credited to us His perfection. Take hold of it. When you take hold of it, you receive a role in the kingdom that cannot be revoked. Just like a Levite is a Levite no matter what. When you are in Christ, nothing can take that away. You can't out-sin God's grace. And He changes our very identity. To put it in perspective, let me close with this memory verse from, for today from 1 Peter 2.9. God has given us this, this instruction and He's given us a role and by His grace He has made us His. And there are expectations that go with that. Peter writes, But you are a chosen people. 
a royal priesthood. That had to be mind-blowing for a Jewish Christian to hear. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. Let's do that for His glory.